we're going to be looking at 1 Timothy, which is uh, uh, where Paul is writing to a church in a hostile environment. Uh, the Greeks had no Christian background, no knowledge of uh, kind of Old Testament canon law, all the things that uh, a lot of us uh, grew up knowing a little bit about Christianity, if not involved in a local church. We certain to some degree, uh, for better or for worse, we were exposed to, uh, you know, kind of the history and the understanding of what Christianity was. So Paul's writing to a young pastor in Timothy, uh, but what's been on my mind all week is last week I was preaching at another church and uh, going, uh, looking at the book of Philippians, and the Philippians were these Greek folks who uh, were for the first time understood, uh, understanding all that it meant to follow Christ. And so Paul prays for them in his text, in his letter, he basically, in his introduction, he stops, we're not going to look at it, but it's really what's kind of gripped me for a week now, uh, is Paul kind of stops and he prays for uh, these young men and women coming to faith in Christ and some older folks that basically have no background uh, in the faith. And uh, what he says is this, and it's, it's really essential for us to be cognizant and aware from an eternal perspective that God's perception on what's important and our perception tends to be, if not uh, different, then sometimes even at odds. And so for us as, as believers, uh, there's a real danger that you and I live our lives kind of with the tyranny of the urgent and uh, our days just kind of roll by and uh, our minds are filled with thoughts and anxieties and, and problems and issues that we face, uh, feelings that we have. Uh, and then there's, there's a real possibility that we, <clears throat> in eternity on that day when we face God, maybe there's a, a dawning that I, I wasted uh, a lot of my time. But this is, I, I don't wanna, this is not my text, but I kind of want to share this with you. It kind of sets uh, the tone of where I want to go. Paul says, and I pray this, <clears throat> that your love will keep on growing in knowledge. Uh, I mean, this is kind of the, the essence for a group of hounded and hunted people in that culture uh, where uh, Christianity is not popular with the government, it's not popular with the uh, kind of the intelligentsia of their day. Uh, there's a lot of adversity against those who would claim the name of Christ. Now, in our culture, we're not used to that, but it seems like uh, we're kind of moving back towards that. And that which our brothers and sisters in Christ experience as a normative life of following Christ and being many times uh, persecuted or disliked uh, in their culture for it, it may become a normative experience for us. So, but what Paul is, is saying when it really boils down to it, what he's, to these young Christians is that he's, he's praying for them that they would grow in their love. And then he talks about knowledge and experience, and I'm not going to go into the Greek because this is not even the text I'm preaching, but it's, it's, it's an experiential love that Paul's talking about, not just an intellect-based love. And what, love, he, what he's saying is, is not only do we need to know about the truth about what God says about himself, but we need to experience an intimate love relationship with him. I love the testimony that we've uh, heard this morning. I grew up in a moralistic uh, culture 
where I was told as a child that in order to be a good Christian, you had to behave a certain way. And the problem is, I didn't know it then. I had ADHD. Uh, every day I went into the first grade. They tied me in my seat with a jump rope because the teacher had 32 other teachers. They didn't have Ritalin at the time. And, uh, I mean, I just, I just was a difficult child to handle. And, you know, I'd go back and find those teachers now and say, well, it really wasn't my fault, but they're all dead, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> And, <laughs> but I, I can remember uh, growing up in a church uh, thinking, uh, you know, at times I would feel guilty and I'd try to be better. Uh, but it seems like the harder I tried uh, to be a better Christian or a better person, uh, the more I failed at trying to be better. And so Paul here is kind of taking a different tack, and he says, look, what, what really is important is that you grow in this knowledge and experiential love and every kind of discernment, which again, with that's kind of like all the noise of life that you might be able to see through God's eyes. And then he, his final statement that I want to focus on, so that you might <laughs> determine what really matters. When everything is said and done, when your life is over, uh, in the end, uh, what about the things that we're preoccupied with this morning? What about the anxieties and the fears uh, that are kind of controlling our days? And when we get up in the morning, the thoughts that are on our mind, and when we go to bed tonight, uh, what we're thinking about that's keeping us from getting a good night's sleep, and kind of put it in the context, an eternal context, uh, where the, the Apostle Paul uh, over in 1 Timothy, where, where, where we're turning now, is essentially he's helping these young uh, Greek Christians that are coming from all over the world. And there's this, there's this transformation that's happening in the church, which the government is against, the society is against. But for the first time, uh, slaves and freemen are worshiping God together in the freedom that is in Christ. For the first time, black and white, uh, different nationalities, rather than kind of staying segmented in their own ethnicity under the banner of the cross, they're coming together and they're beginning to worship together. And where women have always been seen as property and chattel in every culture, historically what's happening now is there are radical thoughts where the Apostle Paul is saying there is no male, there is no female in Christ Jesus. And so there's this unity that's happening in the body of Christ where people's lives are now being radically transformed. And there's a, there's a lot of concern on the apostle that they wouldn't be distracted because of the hostility and the pressure that's coming on the church. And so uh, if you would, uh, looking, we're going to be looking at chapter 2, and I'm going to read that uh, in just a minute. But during the week... Uh, I work for an organization. We have about 3,600 personnel, doctors, uh, 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 nurses, uh, professionals, uh, preachers that serve around the world. And about 80% of them now serve in level three security areas. And uh, because of that, they could never uh, stand before you unless we used a pseudonym for them. They couldn't tell you what countries they were in because if you think of the most dangerous, most hostile, most violent places in the world is where these people out of churches like New Life, they go and they serve and they are through their jobs and their what we call platforms 
platforms, they're proclaiming uh, this gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ. And we're seeing these extraordinary moves. I kind of sat in a security meeting on Thursday all day with a group of people coming in from around the world. And uh, we were told uh, that in that room, we could not even speak or use the countries where our personnel was in because they were fearful that there were uh, maybe somebody was listening in or maybe there were bugs in the room. But they were kind of telling us about in these places how all of a sudden in our generation over the past 20 years, for the first time, people under the tyranny of harsh governments and under the tyranny of false religions are beginning to hear about a God of love and compassion and how they are seeing a literal tsunami of hearts uh, transformed and even, even to the point that cultures are being threatened to some degree. Governments are being threatened. Dictatorships are being threatened because so much of the population now is hearing the gospel for the first time and this transition is going on. And so uh, we, we heard one, and uh, Chris got to hear this story, we heard from an Islamic jihadist. And the Islamic jihadist in the country of Iran had uh, gotten word uh, that uh, there was a group of Muslims who were coming to faith in Christ, and they were beginning to meet in house churches. And by the way, brothers and sisters in Christ, one of the fastest growing churches in the world today is among Muslims in the Middle East. You wouldn't know that, and we don't want you to know that. And if you go out and tell people, if you go out and tell CNN and Fox News that one of the greatest global movements among the world today is among Muslims, I'll say, we don't know what they're talking about. I'll deny everything you say because the reality is that could get brothers and sisters in Christ in that country who are giving up their lives killed for what they believe. But this Islamists determined that for the glory of Allah and uh, to rescue the name of Allah that he would, uh, he would be a part of uh, a group that would go to destroy the church. And the, to make a long story short, short <clears throat> We heard how that Muslim jihadist uh, began to attack the church and, and got into arguments with the people and persecuted the people. And in the long, in the end of the story is after eight months after persecuting the Christians, he not only heard the gospel, but he saw the reality of the power of God transforming lives of Muslims who are now coming to faith in their suffering in the way that they loved them. And after eight months of persecuting the church, he became a believer and a follower of Christ himself. But well, that's not the end. That's not the end of the story. I mean, the end of the story is, is a, the pastor said, I'm just glad the pastor of this Islamic church, this Muslim church, or this Christian, Muslim becoming Christian church said, man, I'm glad you're saved now because he said, now I can get you out of my hair. You won't bother me anymore. And he said, oh, no. He said, I'll be, I'll be at your house tomorrow. And he said, every day. He said, I went and I knocked on the door and I said, pastor, tell me about this word of God. God, tell me about this God of mercy and compassion. We don't understand that. We've never heard that before. There's, there's no concept of grace in Islam. It's only work your way into the presence of a holy God, and we can never be holy like God. Therefore, we're all under condemnation. But we try to work our way into heaven by following the law of the Koran. But we, we know that there's no assurance, and we, we can never know that we're right or have peace with God. And so after a year, that pastor was arrested and put in prison. He said, so, so after a year of becoming Christian, I became the pastor of the church I persecuted. 
And then we heard the story of how the church began to grow and how the secret police came in and busted up the church and carried him off to prison and how every day he was carried into the room with his interrogators and he was tortured. And one of the things that I, I remember about the different perception and his reality being so distinct from my reality as a North American, he said, At what you call torture, I call experiencing the presence of God. Well, Lord, that lady put too much sugar in my latte yesterday. <coughs> and that person uh, cut in front of me, and, on, and do they not know my driver rights? I mean, my mind is filled with all kinds of things that in the evaluation of what I see in God's Word, the reality is they don't matter. Yesterday I was looking forward uh, to really being at home and having a quiet time before I fly back off uh, tonight. And I got a phone call at 10 o'clock in the morning from a dear friend who's serving in Africa. And his mother had gone through surgery and we'd been praying for her and she'd done well uh, from surgery. And we were rejoicing and celebrating that the, such a surgery had phenomenally gone so well. And two hours later he called me and he said, all of a sudden, unexpectedly, mama just died. 30 minutes later, another friend has a brother that we've prayed for, and, and, and he's been in prison for the past 20 years, and, and he, I, my phone rang again, and this dear brother in Christ said, well, I, I just wanted you to know, you know, my brother just died. And, and, and in the context of, of just the week that I've been through and, and my thoughts, I've, I've just begin to wonder and I begin to think, what really matters? We live in the kingdom of this world that is filled with Democrats and Republicans and negative politics and people who hate one another and outrage. But from God's perspective, when all is said and done, when all this has gone away and our short lives are over, in the end, what will really matter? Well, the Apostle Paul in this passage in 1 Timothy uh, kind of gives us some points, and I just kind of want to unfold and look at that this morning before we go home. Paul says to this young church or to this young pastor, Timothy, first of all, first of all, I think, I think about this in the church uh, in, in America where I travel, I'll you know, get an opportunity to, to be in a lot of different congregations, but uh, when Paul says, first of all, he's kind of saying to all the churches through all generations, essentially, this is, this is what really you need to be doing as brothers and sisters in Christ as a church. This is what's really important. So he says, he says first of all, then I urge petitions and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made known for everyone. Now, now what you've got to understand is that for the historical narrative of Christianity over the past 2,000 years, we've never been a people in power. We've always been up until we've seen, you know, maybe the past 100 or 200 years in America. But for our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world, they're always an exceedingly small minority. So people grow up and they live their lives and they come to faith in Christ and they're always in the minority and they always to some degree are excluded and suffer for their faith. Now, what we see here in this first passage is that the reality is the church has always been called to be a supernatural church. Because when you don't have any rights in a culture, and when you're persecuted and you're hated, all you can do is pray. 
But I want you to notice and I want you to see they're not even praying for deliverance from suffering. As a matter of fact, what the Apostle Paul is saying is he's saying pray for the very people who would throw in you, you into prison and who would slander your good names. Look at the rest of that passage. For kings, for all those in authority, no matter which side of the equation that they might be on, we need to pray for those that God has given us who lead our nations, in particular in our country in America. So uh, pray so that we might lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Now, you know, we could, we could kind of stop there and take this verse out of context, and we might read it like we need to pray for America because things are really heating up, and we can see all the wars and rumors of war around the world, and so we need to pray, pray for the world so we could just enjoy life. Because that's all that really matters is that I enjoy whatever life God has given me. But that's, that's not the point. That's not where the Apostle Paul is going. Look, look if you would, at verse 3. This is good as it pleases God our Savior. And here, here it is, verse 4. Who wants everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth? There are 2.8 billion people on planet earth today. Most of them live under the tyranny of a religion that teaches them that God is distant, he is capricious, that he is holy, and we agree with that fully, that he is holy, but that he is totally unknowable, and there's no way that a human being, a sinful, rebellious human being, could ever have a personal relationship with God. And therefore, jihad is something that is legitimate because you're always trying to work your way into the good favor of God. They have no concept that God is good, that God cares for us, that God has compassion for his children. And the gospel message is simply this, that God is good. So why? Why, why this emphasis uh, as a church? Why, why should we be telling our sons and our daughters and our mothers and our fathers and our neighbors? Why should we risk going into the marketplace of America where Christianity is? I mean, that's at best, that's a personal opinion that you have, and I certainly don't want to hear you talk about that. So why should we be taking our hard-earned money and sending people out of our churches uh, that could be, you know, they could be here doing a good work, and why are we sending them to Afghanistan? Why are we sending them to Asia? Why are we sending them to the hardest places on earth. Why are we doing it? And it's because the very essence of what we believe is good news. It is the gospel. It is God's love for humanity. And so he goes on in verse 5, and he kind of gives us the essence of what our message is. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. Now that word mediator means someone that comes between two opposing parties. And every great religion in the world uh, has this concept that God is uh, holy and that he is just and that we're not. And because of that, there's a great gulf, there's a great chasm that by doing good works uh, that perhaps you can cross that chasm and, and you're 
you earn your way into the presence of God, with the exception of Christianity that believes that while we were yet sinners, that Christ died for us. And so uh, some world religions would tell, would tell you that the only possible way that you could ever have of having even a whiff of hope that you could stand in the presence of a holy God is by giving up your life for God. But you see the moral difference in Christianity. What we believe and what we know to be true is that not that we give up our lives for God, but that God died for us. When there was no potential for me ever to stand before whatever God is in his fullness, in his glory, in his righteousness, in his power, there was no potential for me as this little, infinite, rebellious human being to stand before him and demand anything. But when I was yet a sinner, Jesus Christ died on the cross for me. So that's the gospel message. You and I have this boldness and this freedom and this joy that even though we have not only failed, but we fell over and over and over and over again that the sacrificial atoning death of the Messiah was more than sufficient to cleanse us from every sin or every act of rebellion in our lives. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, a sinner, that's good news. So what really matters well, let me just kind of, another way we can look at this is that Jesus is a bridge. He's a mediator or he's a bridge. He gets all of humanity, the 2.4, 2.8 billion people have no access to the gospel. The reason we need to go to them, the reason we need to talk to our neighbors, the reason we need to be involved in our community, not just kind of have a holy huddle on Sunday mornings where we just kind of sit here and, you know, high-five one another and pat each other on the back, but why we need to be mobilized and sent out of this place so that men and women, boys and girls, men might all over the world, beginning here in our community, might know that there's a God in heaven who loves them. Let me just kind of mention four things that God does through us, for us, through his son, Jesus Christ. Number one is he exchanges the fear of judgment for peace with God. God exchanges, or Jesus takes away the fear of judgment, and in place, he gives us peace with God. I love that concept in Scripture is that uh, what I couldn't do, and we heard that in our baptismal testimony this morning, uh, by being good enough, long enough, Christ did for me on the cross of Calvary. And so all around the world, people are longing for a relationship with God. They, they look at the created world uh, that we live in, and they look at it, and they think logically uh, there's no way that a microwave could function apart from an engineer. And they look at the created world that we live in, and they look at the coldness of the cosmos that we live in, and they kind of rationalize and say there's no way the sky could be blue, the trees could be green, that the birds could sing a song, and that I could have breath in my lungs apart from that there is a God in heaven, and we desire to know that. God. And what Jesus has done for us and all the world is he's exchanged the fear of judgment for the peace of God. A second characteristic or a second bridge that God has provided for us is he moves us as his followers from self-centered obsession to God-centered delight. Uh, one of my many failures is I think too much. I don't mean, I'm not, I, it's not like I'm a scholar, believe me. 
Uh, it's not like I sit around, you know, like the, the statue, thinking about all the life quandaries. I just, I think, uh, I think about uh, mistakes. I think about all the time I've spent investing in things that, that really don't matter. And I think about sometimes when people have wounded me or hurt me, and sometimes, you know, you just kind of go down into that well where all of life becomes about your woundedness and, and your, your hurt that we suffer as we go through life. But the glorious work of the gospel and the presence of the Holy Spirit in, in our lives is that as we grow in our faith, God causes us to think less and less about ourselves and more and more about others. And that's wonderful. That changes life. We, we live in this country where it's, it's like all the time we hear this self-actualization about your rights and about how people are just doing you wrong and people don't understand you. Well, guess what? They're never going to do you right and they're never going to understand you, so why don't you just get over it? Really? Why don't you spend your life looking to the God who so cherished you that he sent his son to die for you? God can do in you what you could never do for yourself. The way to live life is not to look inward, it's not to look outward, but it's to live, look upward, to look at God. And what I find is that the more I time I spend meditating and thinking about His Word and His truth and His reality and His goodness and His grace, the more I am elevated and the more His joy is filling my heart and my mind. So Jesus offers to all the world, to all men, our neighbors, our children, everybody, this self-centered obsession, he translates that into God-centered delight. And then the second or the third, I don't really need to preach this because we heard it preached in a testimony this morning, is we move from effort to abiding. Uh, I've already mentioned it. Uh, you know, I can remember growing up, and I, and I always felt bad about it because I, it seems like I never lived up to anybody's expectations. And growing up in the church, you know, I heard those moral, they call it now, they call it moral therapeutic deism. Uh, just behave. If, if you just change yourself, if you just change your behavior, then you can be a good Christian. And by the time I got into high school, I didn't want to be a good Christian. I was having too much fun not being a good Christian. But eventually... Uh, the darkness began to settle in, and, and I began to sow seeds that I began to reap in my heart, in my mind, and, and I saw that destruction. And, and so I began to see people on my college campus who had lives like mine that were being transformed by the power of God. And all of a sudden, it began to dawn on me that God doesn't, doesn't change the way we behave. He changes our hearts. He changes us from the inside out. And one of the things, as we go around the world, and, and Chris has lived in countries where they slit the throat of the animal sacrifices, and the blood fills the street, and the people cry out, oh, God, have mercy. Oh, God, have mercy. Have mercy. And so, so the bleeding of the animals, and, the, and they're dying somehow, is going to, to, to appease this, this angry God. But what Jesus says to you and I in the Gospel of John is he says, quit striving and just come and find your life in me and you will find all the strength and all the peace that you need to walk through your life. So Jesus' invitation is not to work harder. 
it is not to more effort, but it is to rest and to abiding. And then the last thing that I want to say before we close this morning is the reason we need to carry this message is because God exchanges our despair for hope. Uh, my wife's here this morning, and she would tell you if she was honest, and she would be if you asked her. Uh, she married a pessimist. Uh, I, I'm just a realist uh, in my mind, but she says I'm a pessimist. Having lived around the world, and uh, this week I sat down with a gentleman who just came back from the refugee camps in Europe. And I said, well, how did it go? And he, uh, his face froze on me. I could tell there was a lot of emotion. And he said, uh, it was hard. I said, well, what do you mean it was hard? Was it hard physically on you? Uh, and he said, no. He said, uh, it's hard to hold a baby when it dies. Do you really think there's some political movement in this country that's going to redeem the hearts of man? Do you really think that there's any hope for humanity when we're teetering every day on the edge of genocidal chaos apart from the presence of God? Do, do you really think that God would invest in us, his church, his sons and in daughters, this incredible message that there's a king who is coming and when he comes, all suffering, all hunger, all starvation, all wars, all evil will stop because the king of glory is in the midst of his people and there will be no place for that any longer. Our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are suffering close out their evening prayers by just saying this one simple word, Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. I am a person who have, I learned when I look at the world, there's despair. But when I look at the word of God and I see what God has said is coming, I'm propelled towards this great hope that in the days that God has given me, that as many people as possible that I can tell, as many people as I can send, as many people as I can influence, I want them to hear that there is good news. And the good news is that a risen Savior who separated us from our sins, that we might be reunited with our Father who created us. And there's something that is so glorious and so wonderful that's coming that even in the hardest of times when our, our world and our nation is filled with outrage that you and I can walk in peace because our king is coming back to the planet. So here's the challenge as we close. What are you living your life for? Would you be free? Would you be free from the guilt and burdens? Would you walk in the joy of Christ that those around you might see and taste and know that God is good? God has called us. We have different names in the Bible. We are called sojourners. 
We're called strainer, strangers. We're on a journey. We're ambassadors. We're here for this short period of time. And the reason that God has called us to be a church on missions is because God is so deeply and passionately in love with his creation. And you and I are the people that God has put on this planet and this generation that they might know him in his fullness. New life this morning. Ask yourself the question, the way I'm living my life, what really matters? Let's pray. Father, there are people that we know that live hopeless lives behind the facade of a pretend world and we see their faces but we don't know their hearts. God, awaken us from our slumber There is one essential thing that matters. That our sons and our daughters and our grandchildren and our neighbors and our friends might know your goodness. Father, I pray that you give us a passion. We see this global movement around the world among Hindus and Muslims and Buddhists who all of a sudden in this generation, their eyes are being opened and they're worshiping and expecting the return of Christ the King. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that we would not sleep, that we would not slumber, that we would not give our lives over to that which in the end makes no difference. But, Father, in the big things of life and in the small moments of life, that, Father, that we might choose to be your ambassadors to a lonely and broken and hurting and dying world. God, awaken the church. Change our hearts. Put your passion in us. It's not God's desire that any should perish, but that all would come to everlasting life. We're going to sing. Then we'll have elders and people here to pray at the end of the service. If God somehow is calling you to pray, there'll be people here for you to pray with. If you have questions, there'll be people here to attempt to answer your questions. But I'll promise you this. Anytime we meet with God, He changes our hearts. The determination of this time together this morning will be whether or not we had ears to hear and God exchanged our hearts of stone for hearts of flesh.
And the difference will be seen in the way that we live tomorrow for His glory. Let's stand as we close.